This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, September 7th of 2020, it's episode 185. In this episode, werewolves, plus forcing us to pick our scripture, crossing the Watsi streams, Jenny does fashion, Peter does game design, why silver bullets may not save you, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. And we have a really, really big topic ahead of us tonight. We are talking about werewolves because apparently we've just decided we're doing spoopy creatures. Yes. Yep. Uh, I, I took, I will say, Grant, I took mild offense when you implied last episode that the only spoopy month was October. I, I you did know not bring fair. I did not bring it up then, but like as far as I'm concerned, September is September through December. Like Christmas is kind of spoopy anyway. There's light, mysterious lights in the sky and strange men showing up at your house with gold and embalming fluids. So I mean that's pretty spoopy. Um, <laughs> I'll give you November. December just gets dull. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> like it's less spoopy and more stressful for me, if that makes sense. I understand. You have children. <laughs> oh no, even before then. But yeah, I, I kind of agree. We we can have a a three month spoopy period, yeah. and I am fine with that. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know what? It's it's pre Halloween. We don't care. Uh, but we're talking about werewolves tonight, and we'll probably make. I'm sure we'll have a few other spooky to- uh, creatures that we can talk about. We might turn this into some sort of semi-official series. We might not. I don't know. We just talked about ghosts. Mm-hmm. It seems fun. Mm-hmm. We also talked about cosmic horror recently, too. So yeah. we are definitely yeah, on kind yeah. of the... Less, less like specifically talking about a creature there, but, you know, it's eh, whatever. Random horror mm-hmm. topics, roundup. Yeah. We've, well, we've been like talking about like a lot of very creatures. D&D-esque stuff lately, so it's yeah. it's good to branch out from that periodically, if nothing I else. I agree. I agree there. Speaking of that, we have a couple of quick things we want to hit on, and one of them is D&D-related. Yes. <laughs> this is fascinating, and I, I don't really want to discuss it so much as, like, get everyone's hot take on this real quick, because we don't know anything about this, okay? Magic the Gathering released their... Uh, 2021 sets, like, you know, the names of them and what they're going to be, and some of them look pretty interesting. But the one that stood out for most people, I think, was what they're doing to replace the core set for 2021. They're doing a standard legal set in a D&D setting. Specifically, it's going to be called Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. It's the longest title in Magic the Gathering history, and yes, that's two colons. <laughs> One of them should have been a dash. I'm I'm actually really mad about that. Legally, I kind of agree. Legally, but I underst- there should have been a dash le- instead of a colon between Dungeons and Dragons and Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Yes, yes. This is weird because, okay, so we got to remember D and D and um, D and D obviously did not start with Wizards of the Coast, right? It oh, was a TSR, TSR property yeah. and all that. Um, he bought TSR and everything that was TSR became Watsi and right. And that became D and D, but those two products have been very carefully siloed off for a very long time. Yeah. The they first crossover have, was those plane shift books that they started doing. Yes. And then they did a couple of silver border cards. 
that uh, were D&D themed. They had a like a sword of Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Right. Uh, something like that. And then what's interesting is in the next set that they're doing. Uh, well, uh, hang, on, of, hang on. Hang on. They, they also did um, Ravnica and Theros D&D books, too. Yes, they did. And, and I kind of counted that as the. And the, by the, the way, those are excellent. Both of them. <laughs> they, they are very good rules material. Absolutely. So they're starting to bleed over. But this is the first time we're getting like the other way, uh, the other way. And also it's easy to take magic stuff and put it in D&D. It takes a lot more work and a lot more planning to put D&D stuff in magic because mm-hmm. magic requires printed pieces of cardboard, whereas D&D requires you to sit around and think a bit. So, you know, a bit of a difference in, in what you have to produce. I just kind of want to know, what are your takes on this? Like, me and Peter? Yeah. Mine? Mistake. Sorry, I'm putting it out there right now. Mistake. And that's all I have to say. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But mistake. I don't, Peter? I don't think it's such a bad idea. I think the legendaries are going to be really interesting. We'll probably get magic cards for... Drizzt Doerden, Elminster, uh, Blackstaff, a bunch of other kind of famous Forgotten Realms characters that I don't mm-hmm. know very many of because I'm not all that up on my Forgotten Realms. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting. I, there's probably some neat, like, location stuff that they'll call on. I I think getting a Beholder card or a Mind Flayer card would be kind of fun for a lot of people. I'm not playing magic anymore but i do look over the sets when they come out so it'll be fun to look over and discuss certainly i so i don't think it will be a mistake in business terms and yeah. i don't think it's going to be a mistake in terms of damaging D. <laughs> yeah um I, I think it's going to do some weird stuff to magic in a weird yeah. like it's going to kind of dilute the very distinct IP that D&D has created, uh, that Magic has created for itself and mm-hmm. that I kind of have liked. But I also just generally kind of hate the idea. And some of that is a a weirdly like reactionary, how dare you get your, your Magic peanut- the Gathering in my D&D. Like, you, put, some of the, it, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. You got chocolate on my peanut butter. And I'm normally cool with that. But for some reason, this has my hackles up. Now, some of that could be that it's the Forgotten Realms. I think that's just that's the sticking point for me. That is the sticking point for me. I think it could have been really cool if it was, um, um, Eberron. Yeah, Eberron. I think Eberron could have been a really good match. I was thinking about about this. Here's the problem: Eberron. They just kind of did with Kaladesh. The the magic as tech kind of place. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one that people know is probably, um, uh, oh goodness, I'm blanking out, the horror one. Innistrad, which is very much like Ravenloft. Ravenloft, mm. yes. I was trying to think of Ravenloft, right? Well, that's Innistrad, as you said, yeah. which is one of their most popular settings to go back to over mm-hmm. and over for Magic the Gathering. I and honestly can't... like Innistrad better than Ravenloft, which probably makes me some kind of weird gamer heretic, but... Eh. No, I think Innistrad's <laughs> no, no. better realized. <laughs> um, Ravenloft has uh, not aged as well, let's say. And then, you know, if they wanted to do, like, Dark Sun, well, we just went to Amaket, so... 
more deserts, you know, so we, mm. they kind of locked themselves out in a certain way. Yeah. But Forgotten Realms is also the default setting of D&D 5th edition, so yeah. I understand why they're doing that. But I really don't like Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one reason I'm like, oh, this just feels... Everything about Forgotten Realms feels cheesy. We're, we're playing like, in the Forgotten Realms and we pick on it incessantly. Oh, like yeah. All Constantly. of us. Riffing on Forgotten Realms is one of my favorite parts of playing this module. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Um, no, it's... I just We've don't stopped to mock like how it. many like proper nouns in this. Oh, every single one. Mm. Every single one. Um, I don't think we mocked the constable. Yeah, okay. Yet. Fair, but it, that one was pronounceable. It was. Um, but, like, the problem is Forgotten Realms has like all these superheroic characters that are just not that interesting in and of themselves. People have written fiction about it, so it's like, well, we kind of get the setting. And I don't know. It's just... I don't like it. Um, I think rep- I'll say this real quick. I think replacing the core set does kind of make sense for this because it, if it's a set designed as the entry set, they are now kind of giving both of their main products a chance to be in front of new people. Yeah. And I, I think that's cool. It's good business might- sense. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, but I don't like it. I yeah. would rather almost have they... I would almost rather they use Greyhawk. Mm-hmm. Because nobody knows anything about Greyhawk, basically. <laughs> like, I know there were there were things set up there, but you, at this point, you could just wipe it away and start over. No one cares. Yeah. Right? So if they just kind of made it their own thing and said, look, this is the Magic the Gathering D&D plane, I'd have been cool with that. I yeah. do want to see, Peter, as you said, I want to see, like, a Beholder on a Magic card or a Mind Flayer on a Magic card. I think that will be cool. Everything else... I I have a specific counterpoint, though. I think the thing that makes the Forgotten Realms a lousy D&D setting will be the thing that makes it a good Magic the Gathering setting. Because... Ed Greenwood? No. (laughs) The, The fact that it does have that huge, like, established pile of lore and known characters. Like I, like I started saying at the beginning when I was talking about legendaries, you can make an Elminster card. You can make a Blackstaff card. You can make a Jarlaxle card. You know, there's all of these well-known Forgotten Realms characters that even people who don't like the setting all that much, like me, can rattle off lists of and will be interested to see, okay, you know, what is the color makeup of Drizzt Urden? you know? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm I hate the, the fan service those characters get as it is. I mean, like, I don't like them. So that's a turnoff for me. But, but can you see I what I'm get what saying, saying here? I mean, yeah, yeah, like, I do. I do. You know, it's kind of like queued up to be used in that way already. So, yeah, that's true. I don't know. It's just going to be weird. To me, as much as anything else. Here's the, but it's, it, it was worth mentioning. Yeah, it, here's anyway, the other thing about- that's that's kind of cool. You have to remember the D&D team and the Magic the Gathering team are different teams. And yes. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, James Wyatt might do something cool with uh, the realms if he's allowed to. So, yeah, he might. I, I honestly kind of the one thing that I'll say about this. D&D is very popular. Mm-hmm. Okay. Magic the Gathering is far more popular and does far more business. 
I think getting D&D in front of a bunch of Magic players may be good for the role-playing game industry as a whole. Could be. There will be some mm. follow-on effect. For, well, you'll get people playing D&D and interested in it, and then that will help grow the industry somewhat. The problem is that doesn't usually translate into other RPGs as much as we wish it did. Yeah. Oh, I know that. I know. It's a small percentage that move on. There are a lot of people who use RPG to just mean, or they'll say like AD&D to mean a role-playing It game, means right? much the same thing that using Coke in the South means any carbonated beverage. Uh, yeah. 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 I so and also like let's not pretend that the Magic the Gathering larger community has does not have a history of being incredibly toxic and very scary. Oh so, yeah. Like, I mean, yes, absolutely true. So On that's the other that's hand, where so my the thing is. Community. It's just like ah, and and I think you know what? I think the D and D community has done a lot more to detoxify itself. I think so too. I think I actually have of, some theories about why that is. Well, yeah, because you have to talk to each other. Say, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I and it's non-competitive. Uh, depending. Yeah. Well, depending. Yeah, you're, Jenny's right there. I do think um, it's significantly less right competitive that. than Magic, which is fantasy poker. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, it's it's a concern. That's for sure. But we'll see. In brighter news, though, Jenny, you did something really cool, and yeah, uh, talk about this. This is sure. Neat. Uh, so I decided to uh participate in a fashion walk, which is technically different from a fashion show in that a fashion show is like when a brand is like we're showing off all of our stuff, and a fashion walk is when people are like I'm going to dress up in a specific style and show off how I put my outfits or um in in the j fashion community they're called coordinates or cords i'm gonna show how i put those together and how i wear those so i uh, there was a theme that i could go with it was either it ocean or moon themed because the event was the sea uh, the sea of serenity uh event and it was an entirely virtual um j fashion event and i hmm. i've been known to wear j fashion fairly frequently, especially more so now that we've been all cooped up at home. So I, I had, I happened to have a, a an ocean-themed dress, and I was like, well, I can do this. So there's now a video of me out there, not as of the recording of this episode, but when this episode releases, I'll link the YouTube video of the fashion walk, and I just, I filmed myself w- walking on a beach wearing a very concealing clothes. <laughs> very cool. Um, very modest clothing that you would not no- normally associate with a beach. Um, hmm. So, so yeah, uh, that, that's the thing that I did, and it made me late for gaming on on Saturday. <laughs> eh, only a few minutes late. Yeah, we got talking minutes. about Crusader Kings, so yeah. it was fine. Which is something that I really need to get around to playing before I run that other game that I've been planning for after Princes of the Apocalypse ends. Well, I mean, go ahead and pick up CK3 if you have the money for it. I do it looks not, r- but I have CK2 <laughs> I don't either. with everything, so... Yeah, I don't I don't have money for CK3 either, especially because um, I finally got rid of my very dead PT Cruiser <laughs> that I have been driving. It's a 2007. Mm. Yeah. 
the quarantine finally killed it because it sat idle for six months. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. And we don't have a garage, so it was out in the summer sun. But it finally died, so we got a, a replacement vehicle and we, not to get into too much stuff, financing right now and uh, getting loans right now is almost impossible because mm-hmm. everybody's going into debt because we're not getting any support for anything in the U.S. And so there's like there's a 60-day lead for getting loans at this point. Oh, wow. It's nonsense. So we're kind of having to juggle some extra car payments that we didn't quite expect and things like that. But I mentioned this, uh, the Crusader Kings thing, because Paradox just released Crusader Kings 3, which by all accounts and everything I've seen looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy I trust, I've mentioned before, Quill18 does a bunch of uh, videos on this sort of stuff, has officially called it Paradox's best game ever. Hmm. And that's saying a lot. But as part of the promotion for that, Paradox made the base Crusader Kings 2 game free. So if you don't want to worry about any of the DLC, you just download it off of Steam and play it. And I've been doing some of that. And Chrissy has been joining me on it because she doesn't care about moving armies around, but she's all absolutely there for the very weird decisions your characters (laughs) get to make. Like, do we read the occult tome? Should I go hunting with the husband of the lady I'm uh, I'm seeing on the side? Hmm. Yeah, things like that. It's uh, it's pretty great. So she she and I uh, will make decisions together, and it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, Tyler's already Ty- Tyler did actually buy Crusader Kings three, and he has some pretty interesting stories from Crusader Kings two. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can tell it's not my kind of game, but. I can also tell that it's a good game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Chrissy didn't expect it to be her kind of game and she doesn't care. Like if she were driving, she'd hate it. Mm. But consulting on the character decisions is hilarious Mm -hmm. for her. So she, she enjoys that. As a, um, terrible medieval noble simulator, she is all about that, huh? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. And CK3 leans into that much more and the high strategy a lot less, Mm -hmm. which is pretty good. Peter, you had something to talk about. I do. And Um, this is super cool. Yeah. So um, the company that I've been writing 2000 word RPG articles for for a while has decided that they're going to take a run at doing essentially what this project is to fifth edition, what Pathfinder is to 3.5, essentially. Yes. It's, uh, and this and this company is? This is called EN Publishing. Right. And for those who maybe are in the industry, in the, the D&D scene a little bit, this is the same company that produces EN World. Yep. And EN Cider and various other things. It's they're actually a pretty decent-sized outfit in terms of their content production. Mm-hmm. Like most RPG studios, it is a small number of people doing a lot of stuff. So they put out a call for designers for this project recently, and I applied for it. I did not make the lead design team. Yep. And real quick, what is, what is the project? Because I, I took you away from that. Currently, the working title is Level Up or Advanced 5e. Uh, it's like I said, it's it's basically to fifth edition what Pathfinder is to third edition. And they're they're looking to add a little bit more of the complexity that has been lost from previous editions back in in a way that doesn't totally like break anything. Just 
more customization options, that sort of thing. But they're also looking to address a lot of the kind of things that we complained during our alignment series. So like the racial essentialism and that sort of thing. They've got race broken up into heritage and culture. Uh, anybody can be associated with any culture, including one that they're not, their species doesn't match. So you can, you know, you can be an elf raised among halflings or something. It's got the same kind of, you know, you can make Discworld characters, you know, Carrot Iron Founderson <laughs> was a human raised among dwarves kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there's multiple subraces and stuff. There's a playtest packet out for just, like, the heritage cultures and backgrounds right now. That's the, the only thing that they've released. I didn't touch that. I haven't had anything assigned to me for this project yet. I'm on the general design team, not the lead design team. So, I, I like I was starting to say, um, I did not make, like, the the core group of, I don't know, like, 15 or 20 people that are going to really be kind of setting the direction for it, but I'll be writing something for it. I just don't know what yet. Uh, if I had to guess, probably some feats or spells, because I've done that for E Insider, but they may give me something else. I don't know. Cool. But yeah, it's a, it's a thing to um, look for. By the time this episode drops, there will be a blog post that links to kind of the, the playtest material that's out as we're recording, among some other things. Uh, so Go check that out if that sounds interesting. They're they're really trying to like both give you some more interesting options and also address a bunch of the stuff that RPG Twitter is telling people to not play D&D anymore for. So <laughs> I'm I'm pleased with what I've seen so far. I'm interested to see, you know, what else goes on. And just kind of as a side note, this group of designers that they have assembled is both very diverse and very nice. Um, I'm rapidly making new friends with some of these people, so that's kind of cool, too. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm very excited. About, I I would be excited about the existence of this thing if I wasn't going to get to put some tiny little stamp on it. The fact that I'm going to get to contribute to it is just a little extra exciting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Keep us posted on that. I'm yes. sure listeners and Frankly, Jenny and I will want to know more about it as we keep going. I, so. I will. Um, like I said, we're real early days right now. so well, Of course, but it, it's nice to have somebody who can give us, you know, news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is not a news podcast, but hey, that's neat, yeah. you know? Yeah, I I was very psyched. It kind of came out of nowhere, too, so that's, mm-hmm. that's cool. All right, let's do a Patreon question, and then we do have a big old werewolfy topic to get into. Yes. All right, mm-hmm. big old hairy, shaggy, howling at the moon topic. Oh woo! Uh, okay, so this is an interesting <laughs> one, and should actually be quick. Uh, from David Hastings. So David asks if you could have easy, reliable access to Psalms, Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes, but only one of them, which would you pick and why? <sighs> I think for me, it's Psalms. They're a little more universally relatable. Let me just make sure that I'm remembering correctly what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, chasing after the wind. Solomon's kind of world-weary musings. That's Ecclesiastes. I mean, it starts off... Okay, okay, yeah, it's this one. It starts off hopeless, but then it gets sort of... I don't know. I would choose Ecclesiastes because... As almost nihilistic as it sounds, I think overall it's, I don't know, I get a kind of like 
freedom from it. Like, yeah, everything's done been done before. And that's a good thing because like there it takes the pressure off. <laughs> I don't have to be original cuz like it's it's all been done before, so it takes the pressure off. And it's also it's got a a few good kicks in the butt there. True. I think I'm going to very narrowly complete the um the full set and go with proverbs but it's it's a very close contest between that and psalms. All right. I I like the practicality of proverbs. I the 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 problem is by losing psalms you lose a lot of really like beautiful poetry and doesn't mean stuff no and... he's not saying no access it just wouldn't be easy or reliable yeah yeah <laughs> bad internet connection whenever you try and look up something from psalms or something or something like yeah, that the, yeah. the ink is smudged in your bible or yeah or you should uh read um oh my gosh canticle for leibowitz <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> yes, you should, Jenny. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> we're, we're experiencing scope creep. Pull up. We've got a big question. We've got a big topic. Let's do our scripture. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, David, thank you for the question. Yeah. It's a good one. And if you want to ask your own questions, listeners, just back us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash saving the game. And if you are a Patreon backer, make sure you've got questions in our list. Uh, you should be able to see it. Uh, but if not, you can always ask us. Just make sure we, we have a link to it. We are missing questions from a lot of you, and we would like those because they're a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm going to start with Genesis, if that's all right with you guys. Sure. This is Genesis 49, verse 27. And for context, and I know I don't usually do this, but this is kind of helpful here. Genesis 49 is Jacob's final blessings on his sons, which is phrased in prophetic and allegorical language. And it reiterates the natures of the 12 tribes of Israel by kind of giving the natures of the 12 sons of Jacob. For our purposes, note that Benjamin, which is what this little verse is about, was particularly known for their fierce and numerous soldiers. You see a lot of that in, like, Judges, especially chapter 20, things like that. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. And I've got John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So, as we've said a couple times, our topic tonight is werewolves. There is a ton to say about werewolves. Yeah, this is basically this is basically where Peter and I sit back and let Grant have fun with werewolf history because oh my gosh, you went McFreaking nuts on that line. Yeah, Jenny well, and I, I have I, about no. four bullet points each or so and Grant has I, I th- a page I and a half. More. I added I added a few more to mine. Oh so you did. Okay. You've got yeah. you've yeah. got several sub bullet points here. I don't 
And it's worth pointing out, you, you're all saying, oh, Grant went nuts. No, Grant started to and ran out of time. Okay. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's I actually so much like grabbed say. Grant by the scruff of the neck and was like, no, we went almost two hours last time. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I make no promises, Peter. I'm sorry. Um, <sighs> let's talk first about werewolves in the Bible, though, because uh, they're not there. Yeah. No mention so whatsoever. that's an interesting thing for us to talk about in the first place. We're talking about a monster that comes from somewhere else. Now, wolves are obviously mentioned in the Bible a couple I'd, of times. I'd also say that you could almost make an argument for King Nebuchadnezzar as something like lycanthropy. So what's it? I'm going to touch on this very briefly. Martin Luther actually used the term beerwolf uh for a ruler who was worse than a tyrant who must be opposed. Hmm. So that meta- that metaphor has been used by Christian thinkers before us. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not necessarily talking about when he was a tyrant. I'm thinking of the time when he lost his mind and lived in the woods for a bajillion years and then came back. Yes. Yes. That's a very uh, interesting thing to point out because we're going to talk about lycanthropy as well, which is a little different. Uh, but werewolf, like the the word werewolf, never appears. Obviously, not even in translation, right? In in the Bible at all. But the Christian history of werewolves has con- persisted for a very long time. Uh, we see it as early as, uh, yeah, the fourth century. We see this in official church writings. Okay, and before then, a lot of the thinkers that Christians were drawing on did talk about this. I want to talk very quickly about the language that we use when we talk about werewolves because it kind of acts as a weird sort of outline. We have the English word werewolf comes from Old English were meaning man and wolf meaning wolf. Anglo Normans had the term garwolf. Old Frankish werewolf. Old Norse had a cognate word uh, cognate meaning coming from the same roots in, ter- in linguistics. So, varulfur. But werewolves were a lot more important in Norse mythology and culture. So they had more than one term. Ulfethen translates, uh, and I'm, I'm not pronouncing this quite right, I apologize. You're not. Um, <laughs> but, so, sorry, Grant, but not that I could do much better, but I I, I know a bit of Old Norse and, and okay. good, Ulf- good try, good try. Ulfethen? I think is closer. I'm not sure, but it translates as one in wolf skin. And that refers to totemic adoption of wolfish traits and natures rather than shape shifting. And that's important because that idea of taking on wolfish traits was important for certain berserker like warriors rather than taking on like the, the raging bear. They were kind of taking on the wolf traits. You had another more modern term, Kveldolf. Again, I'm very bad at this. I apologize. But that translates as evening wolf, and that's actually named after a specific person, Kveldulf Bjalfason, who was a berserker of the ninth century who actually appears in the Icelandic sagas. So it's named kind of after him, or his name is referring to that trait. It's always kind of iffy when you have characters from sagas, right? Now, by comparison, the word lycanthropy, which when we're talking about gaming, those things are often conflated, right? Werewolves are lycanthropes, that sort of thing. Lycanthropy comes from ancient Greek, and up until the 1830s did not mean werewolf. 
It meant someone who was suffering from the delusion that they had turned into an animal or could turn into an animal. It's a fairly rare psychiatric syndrome. And that comes to Unless us- it's in 13-year-olds. <laughs> well, there, was yes. a, there was a rash of lycanthropy at my middle school. <laughs> Look, OCs are a different thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like, we're talking sleepovers at the full moon every month. Okay. (laughs) Fair. Point is, though, this we actually see this in Galen's writing from the second century AD. Uh, Galen, by the way, fantastic physician, surgeon, philosopher. We could almost have an episode just on Galen. Uh, Listen to Sawbones instead. Like, Sawbones has covered a lot of Galen stuff. Okay, great. Go listen to that. But lycanthropy really just means that delusion. And Galen only used that to mean when they believe themselves to be a wolf, specifically. Okay? We then see it kind of come back into English in the late 16th century. Uh, Reginald Scott wrote a book, The Discovery of Witchcraft. And Scott there, again, reiterates that lycanthropia is a disease and not a transformation. So it's not until we get to Gothic literature where the writers start to conflate lycanthropy and shape-changing and being a werewolf. Now, there's also, and if you thought my old Norse was bad, you're going to hate my Slavic. Oh boy, here um, we go, here we go. Uh, put put three marbles in your mouth, it'll help. Right. So there, there are individual Slavic languages, obviously, you know, Polish and Hungarian, all these other languages that I just, I couldn't even begin to individually name because I'm, unfortunately I'm just not familiar with a lot of them. But they all have individual variations on Vukodlak, which very roughly comes from uh, that, that same language probably brought to the region from Scandinavia by the Kiev Rus. Roughly means wolf skin. And then there's a Slavic word Vertilak which really means vampire or ghoul or revenant, which got corrupted to also mean werewolf, for which you can blame Alexander Pushkin. (laughs) And then after him, A.K. Tolstoy, not Leo Tolstoy, A.K. Tolstoy, because they conflated it with werewolf. My head is spinning already here. (laughs) It's it's interesting because here's the thing. When we talk about werewolves, there's a lot of different myths. Mm -hmm. And that's because there's a lot of different ideas about what werewolf actually means. The Slavic version is much more of the revenant idea, whereas the, you know, North European version is the classic werewolf that we think of from like a Wolfman movie or something like that. And that has always been a pagan idea opposed by Christianity as it spread through Europe. If werewolf folklore dates back to Proto-Indo-European mythology, where adopt, ritual adoption of wolfish traits was part of the initiation into the warrior class, same kind of thing that I mentioned with the Norse. And so, you know, if somebody's a werewolf, that sort of has this pagan connotation to it, especially in medieval writing. There were a bunch of pre-Christian historical werewolf tales that we have written down, uh, especially in Greek and Roman literature. Herodotus writes of the Neuri tribe, which is, he placed sort of near Scythia, but don't trust Herodotus, (laughs) who purportedly changed into wolves once each year for a couple of days and then all came back. Pausanias has 
there's a story of King Lycaon of Arcadia and different authors of the era and, and different historians tell this story several different ways. But the Pausanias version is the story of King Lycaon of Arcadia, who was transformed into a wolf because he had sacrificed a child in the altar of Zeus Lycaeus. Ovid sort of tells that version as well, but then there's another version of the same story where Zeus just blasts him with thunderbolts, so, you know, whatever. Pausanias also tells a really interesting one, and I, I mentioned this, I want to highlight this because this is actually something I think we can draw a lot of really cool werewolf themes and story ideas off of. There was an Arcadian man, Demarcus of Parasia, who was turned into a wolf after tasting the entrails of a human child sacrificed to Zeus Lycaeus, but who was restored to human form 10 years later and went on to become an Olympic champion because he had not tasted human flesh while being a wolf. And this apparently is, according to Pausanias, is something that had been going on since the time of Lycaon, but if they abstain from tasting human flesh for nine years, they return to human form. Otherwise, they remain wolves forever. So there's sort of an idea of repenting or restraining yourself and staying and being able to come back to being human. Pliny the Elder has a bunch of other tales of lycanthropy, but it's Pliny, so that's, I mean, that's fun. Don't get me wrong. Virgil has a few others. There's a very famous one in the Satyricon, which is way too bawdy to read here. <laughs> um, it's, go read it. It's a lot of fun, but it's a bit bawdy. Just saying. But then we get to... Don't read it to your kids, folks. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, goodness, no. By no. body, we Don't. mean B-A-U-D-Y, not B-O-D-Y. Uh, no, and we also... Yeah, B-A-W-D-Y. Oh, and is it W? Now that you say it, I want to say I've seen it spelled they that way They are both before. spelled that way. It's bo okay. I'm, I'm, we are both right. Okay. All right. All right there we go. English, cool. everybody. <laughs> yeah. Again, speaking of languages, this might, don't trust and this English. Might be, this might be a Canada-America thing. Like, we had that conversation on Discord about Labor Day. It could yeah. be, actually. Anyway, once you get to Christian authors, uh, Augustine of Hippo in The City of God kind of recounts that Pliny the Elder story and explains that it's it's generally believed by that by certain witches' spells, men may be turned into wolves. This was just a common belief, apparently. And we'll see that echoed throughout a lot of other later writings uh, as well. The Council of Ancyra in the 4th century produced a text, Capitulatum Episcopi. Again, my Latin is probably worse than my Old Norse. But this became... One of the works the church relied on for anything relating to magic and witches and anything else supernatural uh, and superstitious and pagan and that sort of thing. And one of the things it said is that anyone who believes that anything can be transformed into another species or likeness, except by God himself, is beyond doubt an infidel. So it's known at that time to be a superstition that was worth calling out. Now, they're not saying... This is a thing that can happen. They're saying anyone who believes this is not a Christian. Having said that, Augustine seems to have believed it. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think Augustine you're going to find was, very many people that tell you that Augustine wasn't a Christian. <laughs> right. And more to the point, Augustine was a very important and influential author. And that's especially in medieval Europe. 
So we see Augustine's texts mentioned over and over in medieval writings. It's incredibly influential. And so there's also this very clear belief of werewolves all throughout medieval Europe, to the point where certain legal codes actually tried Account to constrain werewolves. <laughs> so what? I just said a, they they actually tried to account for them in legal codes? Yeah. King Canute, his ecclesiastical ordinances inform us that the codes aim to, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, inform us that the codes aim to ensure that, quote, the madly audacious werewolf do not too, uh, too widely devastate nor bite too many of the spiritual flock. Okay. Too many. So that means not some. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Just bite the annoying ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, there were several texts produced by churchmen talking about werewolves. Gerald of Wales produced a text, Werewolves of Ossery, and Gervais of Tilbury, Otia Imperiala, which was written for royal audiences and uh, was a, a text entirely about werewolves. And also about, you know, women turning into cats and into snakes and a bunch of other stuff. Uh you know, but that belief, he was writing not so much about the fact that this could be done, but rather it is known that this is believed across Europe. And he also says that we can't dismiss it because we've often seen men change into wolves in England. <laughs> uh huh. There you go, right? Um, often, sure. Often. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There was a very famous poem of the time by uh, Marie de France, Marie of France, a lay call, uh, a lay poem for those unfamiliar with the term, circa 1200 AD, Bisclavret. Okay. Yeah, help me out with this one, Jenny. I would say it, and I'm going to be wrong because uh, Quebec, but Bisclavret. Bisclavret. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bisclavret is the nobleman of the story, eponymous character. For whatever reason, he had to transform into a wolf every week. His wife was treacherous, stole his, and then stole his clothing, needed to restore his human form, and so he had to stay a wolf. He then escaped the king's wolf hunt by imploring the king for mercy and accompanied the king thereafter. And he was such a gentle wolf that when his wife and her new husband appeared at court, he attacked them and it was deemed justly motivated, and the truth was revealed. <laughs> and I believe it was, you know, he then was transformed after uh, back into a man afterwards. And there's a go bunch ahead, of Wolfie. Theme. You chomp those people. We don't like them. <laughs> well, it was definitely like, oh no, no, he was betrayed by his wife, and mm -hmm. yes, yeah, she and her lover clearly deserve it. You know, one of those moral kind of stories, but this touches on something that we get in a lot of werewolf tales of the era. Clothing as a thing that restores somebody back to human form. We see it in that Satyricon story, for example. Pliny the Elder has the whole thing about consumption of human flesh. You're right, this wolf was very gentle. He didn't, and so he was kind of allowed to return. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. So we get a lot of those same elements over and over. A lot of the ones in Quebec, I think, it's less clothing, and uh, the the one that I'm I'm familiar with is if while he's in wolf form, his wife or sister or um, mother 
sees him and calls to him in his full name and asks him to come home, he will turn back into a man. And it's the application of, for lack of a better term, civilization to a wild thing, to to retame and bring back this person into the fold. Yeah. There's a couple of, there's a lot of other mentions. Uh, Ninius, Welsh monk from the 9th century, he mentions Irish and British werewolves. Another Irish work, Tales of the Elders from 12th century, mentions female werewolves. There's a few Germanic texts in the 11th and 13th century. It goes on. I mentioned Martin Luther. He uses the term beer wolf, again, to describe a ruler worse than a tyrant who must be resisted. So we get that metaphorical idea of, you know, something even worse, right? A, a, a monster among men. The Norse had a lot of fighters who dressed in wolf hides and channeled wolf spirits in in battle. So again, the berserker idea. And then you have the Kievan Rus, which gives rise to the Slavic werewolf tales. So and there's a, a couple of examples that we could point out, but I don't think we have time for. Because then we start getting into witchcraft. Because around starting when the witch with the witchcraft panic of the 1400s on to like 1650, 1700, we get a sort of conflation of werewolfry with witchcraft. You tend to see being a werewolf ascribed to witches as one of the charges against witches. Yeah. Um this is mm-hmm. where I think we get into we we talked a little bit about this in uh, monsters as monstrous versus monsters as diseased mm-hmm. where I think this is where we start to see werewolves definitive definitively as or we start to get into that transition period between werewolves as monsters versus werewolves as diseased because this is where you can get into I have been cursed by a witch <laughs> Yes. Well, more to the point, you get a lot of that as being a werewolf is a sign that you are a witch. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd and actually you, like you to get, cut in with something else here You get a bit of crossover there moment. as well. Yeah. Like, All right, Peter, what were you saying? Um, so this seems like a good point because we're talking about people being accused of this sort of thing to bring up a couple of real world things that have led to werewolf legends. Uh, I have a very short list of this. This should go quickly, but I'd like to get it in here because it seems like this is the appropriate time. So the uh, one thing that uh, you can get, and I will probably butcher this too because it's a long medical name here, but there's a disease called hypertrichosis, I believe. It's pronounced, um, you are really super hirsute. Like you have hair everywhere like mm-hmm. um in lots more places than humans would normally have it you know we usually have fairly smooth skin imagine like a literal furry human being so that is you know the sort of thing that it's weird enough where back in previous eras yeah that was enough to get you accused of witchcraft there's another disease called porphyria that actually seems to be more responsible for a lot of vampire legends too, but as Grant is probably going to get into, vampires and werewolves get conflated a lot, and that's kind of Especially interesting. Especially in Slavic-speaking regions, absolutely. Also, thanks, Bram Stoker. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, it started well before him, but he okay, definitely but he, contributed okay. in the English, I would love, in the English I would, world. Yeah, I would love to get into that later. Yeah. Because I have a book about it now. Woo! Yes, you do. 
And then there's the one that everybody knows, which is good old-fashioned rabies, which will take an ordinary wolf and make it much, much more aggressive than it would normally be. Yes. Uh, you'll, you'll get, you know, wolves... For those that are not aware of this, wolves are not usually particularly hostile towards humans. Let uh, me actually correct you on that. Up until the late 19th century, wolf attacks were uncommon, but not unknown and generally were considered a real thing. There, wolves are, you know, just as hungry as everything else. Right. Hence and when, the word when there's particularly. A well, I know, but but it is important to note wolf attacks were a real thing, and while probably featured more in popular imagination than they actually, you know, existed, absolutely did happen where wolves would attack people because they were easy prey. Right, yeah. The, uh, the only, like, saw that like, you've heard that wolves never, ever attack people is incorrect. They're, they're a yeah. predator. They they will go after whatever they think they can eat if they're hungry enough. Right. Uh, but, but, like, I, that was why I chose the words that I did. Like I said, they are not particularly aggressive towards people. Wolves, I think, are smart enough to realize that humans are usually not the easiest prey around. Yes, most of them <laughs> definitely understand that. Yeah. Although... Cattle and other yes. livestock, <laughs> which is where I was yeah. going with this. So you'll you'll get you'll get creatures that are raised by humans that will be picked off by wolves and stuff. But a rabid wolf will not only be more aggressive and you know go after humans who come and try and you know chase the wolf away from the cattle or something because it's rabid, but they also during a certain stage of the rabies infection get a little on the pain resistant side and can take a lot more punishment than a normal wolf would be able to take which is the sort of thing that you only need to see something like that happen a couple of times and it, it the legends start forming right there so right yeah rabies is is definitely responsible for at least some monster stories because it will turn an ordinary animal into a monster on some level absolutely now, there, there are also, and this is something we're going to talk about a little later, there's a lot of cases of what appear to have been serial killers who sort of got ascribed as werewolves. Yeah. You yeah. Know, the idea of, you know, somebody who is more animal than person or is outside civilization in a way, a secret killer among us, that kind of thing. To get back to the historical take on this real quick, like I said, witchcraft trials had this thing going on for a long time. I mentioned uh, that book by Reginald Scott. It's written at, you know, the, his discussion of lycanthropy was written as part of the discovery of witches. Uh, you get a bunch of texts about it from the 1400s, really up until 1650, and a lot of different werewolf accusations. Uh, interestingly, Peter, to echo your point, there were several cases where there was clear evidence against some random wolf, but the person being tried for, you know, for being a werewolf had no evidence against them. It really appears to have been a wolf attack that was, you know, I'm thinking here of uh, Gilles Garnier uh, in particular, who it appears to have been a wolf attack that sort of panicked people and caused them to find a scapegoat. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's other, like, beast legends that have kind of gone similar ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the, 
famous beast of Jevaldan that was uh, described Absolutely. as being very wolf-like, but not a wolf. Um, there's, right. There's a movie about that called Brotherhood of the Wolf that I rewatched in preparation for this and found that I didn't like as much on this rewatching as I had in previous ones. Um, I remembered the action scenes and did not remember a lot of the incredibly messed up stuff in that movie. So, there was a lot of messed up stuff, but, you know, yeah. still a decent, if difficult to watch movie at times. Yeah. Um, should be pointed out, by the way, a lot of the werewolf attacks uh, that I mentioned uh, and the trials for werewolves during the, the witch hunt period had clear evidence of murder and cannibalism among the accused. And again, that gets into sort of the serial killer thing. Yeah. Up until about 1650. Right. You really get a, uh, a lot of these werewolf conflations with witches. But then around 1650, a lot of times people just sort of assume, no, werewolves are just uh, victims of delusion. It's that that understanding of it as lycanthropy, ra- you know, the, the delusion of being a wolf rather than witchcraft, even among people prosecuting witchcraft. There's like, no, no, no. Werewolves are delusions. Witches, that's a real thing. Let's separate these, which was kind of interesting. That actually gives you a good transition into the Ben and Dante. Well, it does. But one thing I want to note real fast is that the only place where you still got the werewolf panic, as it were, after 1650 was the Holy Roman Empire. That persisted well into like the 18th century. So there you go. The Benandanti, we got to talk about because this is just fascinating to me. These are, Benandanti translates roughly as good walkers. And this harkens back to those pagan traditions that predated Christianity. So the Benandanti came from a particular area of northeastern Italy during like the 16th, 17th centuries. And they claimed that they were werewolves, basically, but not exactly the shape-changing kind of werewolf, more like they could come out of their body and fight against malevolent witches, and that would ensure good crops. Again, kind of a, a very pagan, agrarian sort of tradition. But there's a certain amount of Christianizing that happened with it. I mean, they talked yeah. about actually going down into hell and fighting things oh, down yeah, no, there so that's the thing it was sort of christian it was, it was a syncretic sort of belief where they were fighting witches you know they'd get their uh, sorghum out and the witches had their evil fennel and they'd fight and you know they had magical powers purportedly and a lot of this stuff ended up being subsumed into witch witch hunts but it should be noted that the church largely just kind of went what <laughs> okay, you're just you're just kind of delusional, my dude. Um, the inquis the Inquisition really didn't care about this until pressure from very high up eventually got there and said, "All right, no, we got to crack down on this." Yeah, There's it's, actually, it's interesting. Oh, like, you know, like the Inquisition is not known for being particularly like nuanced or merciful or anything. But yeah. there, there's accounts of this particular old guy who insisted he was one of these showing up at the trial and the Inquisition being like, 
would you please just stop telling us about this? If you can stop <laughs> telling us about this, we don't have to do anything about it, and we would really rather not do anything about it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, it basically took some outside inquisitors showing up and being like, all right, I guess we gotta, I guess we gotta try and categorize this as witchcraft. Even then, I think they just put him under house arrest. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do a whole lot with this particular guy that we're talking about, which was a, a male Benandante named Paolo Gasparato. This was 1575, thereabouts, right? It's so also you, you, worth noting that he was old at the time. Yeah, well, again, that's kind of part of it, right? They yeah. just, they didn't care very much. Anyway, Benedanti are fascinating, but you have this idea of Benedanti as witches slash werewolves. And they're fascinating, but they're, these were good werewolves fighting to fight off evil witches. Weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very. That, that's ultimately my point. couple other quick notes here. Obviously, there's a lot to be said about shape changers in general. We're really focusing on werewolves in this episode because there's a lot to say about them. But you get we're going to have to come back to lycanthropes because anywhere there aren't wolves, people come up with other shape changer myths. Oh, yeah. Like swans, seals, swans, bears, were jaguars in South, South America, technically everywhere. The, technically the Lugaru which is basically the French werewolf has some very specific rules to it. Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a wolf. It can be a pig, a cat, an owl. Like, it does not have to be a wolf. Yeah, it's extremely cool. Let's get, however, into some of the, the gameable themes of some of this, because I've talked about a lot of the history because a lot of these historical examples and causes relate to the themes that we see in modern werewolf traditions. Our, our gothic literature, which of course ended up becoming movies based on these ideas. There's a, you know, a lot of that gothic horror stuff became some of the very earliest movies that were made and became popular. Yeah. Can we also talk about briefly how the conflation of vampire and werewolf came because England briefly became obsessed with Iceland? Yes. Because that's basically what happens. So basically, I, I got a lovely book. I got a book called Powers of Darkness that is basically the I, it's the English translation of the Icelandic translation slash adaptation of slash localization of Dracula, which Bram Stoker's own family, like his, his existing descendants, think probably he had a hand in turning it into an entirely different story. Like, he gave the translator an early draft because they think he thought it would work better for Iceland. So England was, like, pretty much obsessed with Icelandic tourism in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so you got a lot of British folks writing about Iceland. And Bram Stoker had a lot of friends who went to Iceland regularly. He was a very private man, so we don't have a lot. Uh, I don't think he ever went there himself that we know of, but we might just not know. So with this obsession with Icelandic tradition, you get a lot of that sort of folklore coming into British pop culture at the time. And that's where mm -hmm. you get a lot of what if vampires could also turn into wolves? <laughs> and what if... And you get a, a little bit of that earlier on, but this is where... Bram Stoker, the man himself, really brought it to the forefront and really sort of pushed this vampire as generic creature of the night. Right. 
And that's where you get, oh, I can control wolves. Also, I might be a bit of a wolf. Also, I have a lot of weird hair all over me. Oh, also, I have all these wolfish traits. Also, bats. But more... he. There's a lot more talk about about wolves than bats in in the the base Dracula story. Yes. So so yeah, that that's I mean, where that comes thing from. Is is where he sh- is how he is known because of what he's doing with Lucy. But yeah, but even then, but it his doesn't traits show are always up. described as wolfish. It, it, funny enough, he shows up more as a bat in the in the Icelandic version. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Go figure. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so we have that, and again, you see a lot of the the werewolf as revenant conflation also happening mm-hmm. in in Slavic languages. So it's worth pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Just Naturally, real quick for those who we've used this term a few times and haven't defined it, a revenant is somebody who comes back to avenge their own death. Basically, the crow well, is a revenant. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, we're here we're talking more about a ghoul. yeah, yeah, like sort of comes back. Yeah, somebody who Some, comes back, but the, like the, the word thing, revenant like, literally means re-come. Yeah, and in in the Slavic tradition, it's less about coming back to avenge yourself and more just coming back and not being dead, not staying dead, and feeding off graves and and life force and that sort of thing. Or blood. Yeah, right. fair enough. And that's where some of the vampire, some of that vampire uh, mythology comes from as well. Okay, so we have a lot of that, and then a lot of that gets translated into movies. In pop culture, and we get a lot of that, a m- awareness of disease and the idea of rabies, for example, translates pretty quickly into the idea that werewolves can trans can transmit lycanthropy with a bite as a disease. Uh, yeah. Again, that we see that in D and D, perhaps most commonly, and some er- that comes from some earlier scholarship about. Uh, well, maybe all these werewolves were. Just rabid people, as as Peter talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have some similar exploration of duality in people. You know, right? Psychology starts to be a thing even before that. We have, you know we have Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Now, which I put I put that in there. I put that in there because I'm mad about the portrayal of certain Doctor Jekylls and Mister Hydes. I. I'm <laughs> with you on that, but I'm, I, I mention it mostly because of the whole duality. Yeah. Thing. Okay. Yeah. So, right. so hang on before we get past the duality thing, because this is this is kind of cool and kind of important. This actually gets mentioned in uh, GURPS Horror, which I've uh, talked about a few times before. I, mm-hmm. But the werewolf is based around the fear of nature in two different ways. First of all, it is the fear of nature uh, that is going to come and eat you. You know, it is it is the hungry beast that comes out and devours you and your, you know, livestock and your loved ones and that sort of thing. It is nature red in tooth and claw. It is also that animalistic side that we all have inside of us. It is rage. It is lust. It is impulse. It is, you know, that kind of, like, desire to you know, smash things and, you know, like be violent and, you know, be carnal. And that it's so it's this interesting, like dual focus of nature. Like you are overtaken by like the, you know, the the worst impulses of your animalistic side. And then you become this horrible predator that goes and terrorizes others. Right. That was a, a neat kind of like. You know, that gets into the dualism and it's like a 
two parts of the same whole, but it's all still the fear of, you know, nature and bestial yeah. nature. When, when we're talking about fear, absolutely. There is also the the paganism aspect of it. The, you know, the ritual donning of the wolf as a totem animal. That's one reason that one of the most common uh, ways of turning into a wolf for werewolves when it wasn't something that was just sort of inherent to them was putting on a wolf skin or a belt made of wolf skin. Mm-hmm. That idea of putting on the wolf. Yeah. yeah. Right? yeah. Like it being an active choice to embrace this animalistic yeah. side of yourself. Yeah. We, so there's, there's a bunch of themes that we've hit on here, right? The serial killer one maybe stands out the most for me, but yeah. I want to talk first about what Peter was talking about with that idea of the conflict between man and beast or man and nature, because this is one of those that I think we can really play up in a game. The idea of the werewolf as a little closer to nature than most people infected by nature in a way, sort of torn between those two worlds. We see this actually in Eberron as a, as a D&D setting. We see that very clearly called out. There's other forms of lycanthropy and, you know, as in terms of shape changing in that in that particular sense, but the idea of it, you know, this being very closely tied to the nature plane in the Eberron setting. Yeah, and I mean, you see you see that you see it a lot. the same kind of tie in a lot of other games too. Like if you look at War Machine, I believe there's some werewolf or wolf-like units in mm-hmm. that. Uh, werewolves are red-green in Magic the Gathering, which is yep. kind of the, you know, the two nature colors. Yeah. They're lifeblood in the Ascension card game. They're, Skyrim has it associated with uh, the Daedra of the Hunt. Yeah. So there's, there's this, like, you know, if there's like a nature or druid faction or something like that, in a lot of games, chances are there will at least be some connection to werewolves. Right. Uh, it also, a lot of the early myths involve coating your your body with magic salves made from poisons and uh, things found in nature, mm-hmm. right? Or drinking rainwater out of the footprint of a wolf. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, this idea of being connected to nature, ingesting nature, putting that that nature on, something like that. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. I think it's very gameable. Um, it, put, it also makes the werewolf potentially less evil because it's somebody who is afflicted. Oh, I don't in, know in, about that. Hold on, hold on. Because I, said potential, I said potentially for a reason. Okay. You could take it the way this way as this is somebody who is afflicted by this irresistible call of the wild. We even see that in, um, oh my goodness, Robert Jordan. Wheel of Time? Wheel of Time. Thank you. You're wow. welcome. <laughs> it's, I'm very tired. We see it in Wheel of Time with people who get stuck in sort of being a wolf. Hmm. In their heads and going crazy. Now, the way uh, that I look at the the more nature side rather than the disease side of it is you made a choice to do this to yourself. And you made this choice to become a monster. And that's now, another approach. Now, I'm talking about yeah. how you could game this. I mm. like that. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you could very easily present it as a choice or something that you struggle against. Yeah. A okay. Call. So... I want to I want to take a little bit of this is going to go back to our ghost episode 
In some ways, one of, I think at least, the more interesting stories that you can tell with a werewolf is to use it as a puzzle like you do with a ghost. You mm -hmm. have this thing that is going out and, you know, mauling livestock and possibly people, depending on how dark you want to make your story. It is a problem. You figure out through whatever means that it's a werewolf, but you don't know who it is. So you have to figure out who is the werewolf. You have to figure out whether this is something that they did on purpose or this was done to them. And then you have to figure out based on that whether it is a, worth it to even try and cure them, and B, if yes, how? Also, while, right. you know, ideally preventing further loss of life, because, you know, werewolves are, in most games, incredibly dangerous creatures. They're strong. Yeah, sure. They're, we haven't even gotten to, like, in a lot of Legends, werewolves can't even be harmed at all unless you have silver weapons. Like, mm -hmm. it's... They're strong they're they've got heightened senses they're very durable they're fast that you know it's like <laughs> it's like a hairy xenomorph it is not something <laughs> you want to tangle with yeah there I'm, I'm going to quibble with you slightly on the silver thing because there's so many folkloric ways of you know removing yeah yeah the more female relative thing and the more the yeah. more modern interpretation though of of silver exclusive um, I, th I think that's a lot more common these days than any of the folk folkloric. Yeah, oh, yeah. But, but yeah, since we're true. talking about gaming, that is often how the game stat blocks work right. out, you yeah. know, or Wolfsbane yeah. or fire. Yeah. Like there's always those, those different kind of things. But yeah, the idea of they are a monster with weaknesses, you know, very specific weaknesses, absolutely very gameable. You talked about them being tough. One of the, Finnish and Scandinavian uh, werewolf myths had them usually as old women with poison-coated claws who could paralyze cattle and children with their gaze. Ugh. Sounds Finnish. Right. Yeah. It does, but it's that, that idea of this is a monster that is more than just a wolf or, you know, some wolf-human hybrid, you know, your wolf-man style or even worse, werewolf- you know, the werewolf, <laughs> werewolf apocalypse, apocalypse style. Krenos form. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but something that was just worse than a wolf, right? Mm -hmm. That idea. And that also kind of gets us, Peter, what you were talking about, the whole investigation thing, that gets us to the serial killer approach because there's a real similarity between a hunt for a werewolf and, you know, your TV cop investigator drama looking for a serial killer. Sure. I mean, there's a reason why the games Mafia and Werewolf are almost exactly the same. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, it's the hidden threat in your midst. Yeah. Yep. And you can then, I think you can present it either way, having it as, you know, a cannibal serial killer because there's a lot of cannibalism stuff associated with uh, werewolves in certain things, especially during that witch hunt period. You can very easily have that as the person, you know, hiding among us and being horrible and awful as a result. So I think you can also if you if you take the diseased route for the werewolf, I think mm -hmm. you can also get that feeling of the circle is closing in and the longer time and the longer the original werewolf is out there, 
the fewer people you can trust. And that sort of slow, creeping dread of, oh no, you're gone. Oh no, you're, now you're with the werewolf. Oh no, now you're with the werewolf. And just that, that closing circle. That and, I mean, like, you know, on the other side of that, you can definitely get into some, like, cornered animal tropes and stuff where... Mm -hmm. You know, the the hunt for the werewolf makes it desperate, and that triggers the bestial side and makes it even more unstable and dangerous. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the other piece to note, much like the witch hunters of the era, there were werewolf hunters as well. You know, werewolf charmers, actually, is what they uh, were called. That's a, a trope you can bring in, the specialist mm-hmm. detective, the specialist who fights these sort of creatures and finds them. That, that idea of, you know, they have the special armament, much like, you know, the witch finder or the vampire hunter. Yeah, um, yeah. He can, you know, the silver bullet, which really appears, by the way, is to be a German invention of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a lot of that sort of stuff. It really is kind of amazing how much of this stuff that we think is traditional folklore has really only been around for a century or two. Like the, the oh, tarot yeah. deck oh, was yeah. the other one that really was like, wow, it's that recent. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Like people have crazy simultaneously short and long memories it's kind of mm-hmm. nuts yeah. ley lines um, are also far more real or uh, recent than you think you know mm-hmm. it's just like yeah we, yeah, we have a, we have a lot of gameable stuff to thank the victorians for is what i'm saying oh here. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well but also the germans yes you know the, we also talked about the the revenant connection with werewolves there's a really cool one that i find fascinating the greeks believed some you know scholarship suggests it stopped somewhere around the 1800s but before that uh the greeks would believe that the corpses of werewolves if they weren't destroyed would return to life as wolves to prowl battlefields and drink the blood of dying soldiers or eat them hmm. uh hmm. likewise in some parts of germany if you died in mortal sin you came back as a blood drinking wolf that would return to their human corpse form at daylight and tell me if that doesn't sound like a vampire. Mm. It does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, oh, how did you deal with them? Decapitation and exorcism by the parish priest. Mm-hmm. Which also sounds like a vampire. Yeah. And, oh, and, throw, and the, throw the head into the stream. Vampire yeah. uh, still. Yeah. Running yeah. water. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, that conflation certainly exists and is is fun to explore. Yeah. I Can we also, also talk like about what... the differentiation between them? Because I think it's one of the most fascinating pop culture supernatural trends of the 2000s. Okay. <laughs> because werewolf versus vampire is yes. literally one of my favorite cheesy tropes. And I entirely have Underworld to thank for that. Yeah, and Underworld had a lot. Obviously, very obviously, was drawing off the uh, Matrix, White Wolf. but also, <laughs> well, White Wolf and the yeah. Matrix, yes. like like so much so that White Wolf successfully sued them. Mm-hmm. So so like, but but here's the thing: Underworld did White Wolf better than White Wolf did White Wolf. So <clears throat> anyway. Wow, I'm just gonna throw those, that hot so, take out and walk away. Uh, I see. But that. in the because. It's true. In the conflict between those two creatures, I, I'm not going to argue the point too heavily. I, I okay. largely As agree, too. As their own too. things, just... I mean, White Wolf, I think, did it better. 
But the whole werewolf-vampire yeah. conflict has always felt yeah. extremely... Tacked on. Artificial mm-hmm. in White Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, Not that Underworld made it better, necessarily. Underworld they made, it made it more fun for me. Yeah, they made it more fun. <laughs> Specifically for me. I have a huge amount of unironic love for the terrible Underworld series. I love okay. that garbage to death. <laughs> and well, back again. I have a I have a, a real love of ultraviolet, you know, okay. which I think feels very similar in the this is kind of cheesy, but I don't care. I tried ultraviolet and it wasn't the same. It felt too much like my least favorite underworld movie. Anyway. OK, fair. One of the people I don't think it's nearly enough credit in the underworld credits, basically, is uh, mm-hmm. the right one of. Basically, the guy who came up with the idea and then immediately got overshadowed by the director, uh, Kevin Grivu, who has done a whole bunch of work in horror movie writing and stuff like that. Super smart dude. has I think he has a master's in biochemistry or something, which really seeps into his work a whole heck of a lot. Anyway, he, in my personal opinion, and you you can fight me on this, and, and you're, you're probably going to win, but I think he has a, an excellent grasp on class relations and how to to put those metaphors into existent works and he did that amazingly well in underworld which he wrote based on his experiences with interracial dating because kevin grivu is a large black man and no surprise he shows up in the movie as a werewolf the werewolf as self liberated, formerly enslaved, you know, slaves of the vampires is, I think, a really, I think they actually did, the script writing wasn't the bestest, but if you fix the actual, like, dialogue, you have a pretty decent backstory there. If I can jump in real quick. Absolutely. Yes, please do. I can go on for ages. (laughs) You're actually not alone in thinking this. Susan Sellers wrote a study, Myth and Fairy Tale in Contemporary Women's Fiction, Mm. in 2001. And one of the things she talked about is how a lot of the very late 1800s horror literature, Dracula Mm -hmm. uh, and other works by Bram Stoker, like Dracula's Guest, where Dracula appears as a great wolf, Mm -hmm. right? And the only way to kill it is a sacred bullet. Yeah. That kind of thing. Dracula actually says in, you know, Count Dracula says in the book Dracula, legends of werewolves originated from his bloodline. And he obviously can shift into a wolf at night. But Susan Sellers talks about this whole idea of, you know, the these demons and all that sort of thing. It's kind of fears of late Victorian patriarchy. Yeah. And I think there's something about that, that idea of... You know, the these patriarchs being actually just parasitic or oh, yeah. cursed, right? Yeah. And something rising up and, you know, bubbling up underneath. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, vampires have been used as a metaphor for the wealthy for quite a while. But oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, like pre-Bram Stoker, I think. Yeah. Sure. But we're um, also not talking about vampires this episode. We're not talking no, about vampires. So. No. But... <laughs> I think I think that the underworld setting does a huge amount of good with its uh, metaphors for for class and race relations. I think it does a pretty good job, and I I have fun watching 
my my mm-hmm. favorite garbage. Yeah, uh, werewolves. I'm actually looking through. There's a bunch of footnotes in the the Wikipedia article on werewolves that all mm. actually echo this ver- this same point, talking about werewolves as working class monsters. Yeah, that's partly why. Like when, because I, I first brought up this. When did we last do? When did we do the monster versus? Like the monstrous versus disease. Oh, it was uh, monster monster. I don't 2019. It was a, it was a while ago. Anyway, part of why I, I brought it up in the first place is my friend was surprised that I was that I did not identify more heavily with werewolves because because uh, I'm very far left in my political leanings and his immediate thought was oh Jenny will like werewolves more because they are the working class the blue collar monster basically and. I think I think okay. I I mean the werewolves in Underworld were right. Just saying, that's another take that I'm that I'm standing firm on. But I think that was one of the central points of that movie. Like even yeah. the vampire protagonist comes around to that conclusion at some point in the series. So oh, oh very yep. early on, very early on. <laughs> it's been a while since I watched them. I didn't want to. You don't have to rewatch them if you don't want to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they I were they were the fun. They, they're they, fun. They're fun. I crochet to them. I crochet to them, and that's like it's it's prime crocheting. Okay, watching. Grant. Anyway, you we have to remember something. You are not particularly predisposed positively towards movies as a medium. Yeah. So <laughs> your standards tend and to be a little higher. And does that mean I'm I'm immune to the allure of midday sci-fi movies? I mean, I'm not going to tell you yourself on that one, but it's like... it's actually more Chrissy's bag. But yeah, you know, like I, I've, I've been suckered in. I have watched Underworld twice. <laughs> I paid some attention both times. It, it was okay. fine. I saw okay. it in the theater. I Ooh. have watched it at least five times at this point, and it got me through most of a, a blanket in crochet work. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I got a few thingies on how to game it. You need to establish the rules of of how your werewolfing works right from the start at like right. session zero if you're gonna play a werewolf or if you're gonna include them in the story, because otherwise you get cheatsy nonsense like min maxi cheatsy nonsense that makes it no fun for anybody because all of a sudden your werewolf is Superman and flying around and and doing nonsense. Establish from rules a, from the get go. I also have another take on this that I I'd like to toss out there. I think that if you're really going to do a good werewolf story, D&D is not the system to use. I think you want something where your protagonists are a little more fragile, Mm -hmm. where they can't just rely on magic. And a lot of other, you know, like, you know, good investigative rules. Many, many other things that D&D just doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, if it's, um, it's going to be more investigation, you definitely want rules that support that. If you want it to be a slightly more, I'm going to say, cartoony approach, something like Monster of the Week. Yeah. Solid choice. Yeah. If you Is just want a sack uh, of hit points that require silvered weapons to kill, they're fine in D&D. But yeah. if you're going to make them the central point of something, you want yeah, to use a different system. If you want a, a werewolf story, D&D ain't the best for it. Right. Um, yeah. Isn't there uh, a Weird West powered by the apocalypse that has I'm werewolves sure. as a main thing it, I, i'm going to go out on a limb and say yes there is but i don't know it like gosh if I you ask me isn't there it. a powered by the apocalypse the answer is probably yes probably yes yeah there's been a lot of those 
Yeah. Uh, World of Dusters, maybe? Is it... It might be Dead... No, it's not Dead World. Is it Dead World? I don't know if it's Dead World. Uh, sorry about that. Anyway, um, regardless, we know that there is a Powered by the Apocalypse Weird West with werewolves out there, and it seems pretty good for it. Sweet. Werewolf the Apocalypse seems really weird to me, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Maybe skip uh, Werewolf It's the not my favorite of the White Wolf games. It's not awful. It is not traditional werewolves. It yeah. kind of pays a little homage to it here and there, but it is its own thing. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think that own that thing is protagonized fine. is definitely getting away from the legends. Yeah, I I will agree with Grant. It's it's a good game. It's just not traditional werewolf lore. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we were kind of talking about with Doug Underhill last episode. It's the chaotic neutral world of darkness RPG. <laughs> so. It really is. Yeah. I also think, and Jenny, I, I think you're you're with me on this. You really have to nail down under the the circumstances for transformation and yeah. whether or not your characters have control over it. Yeah, because there's the whole, oh no, the, the full moon is rising, I'm turning into a werewolf. And then there's the the type that that I people shift see, into battle see the, form. The, the, time yeah. that, the, the type that people seem to think Dr. Jekyll has where I can turn into a werewolf whenever I want. Yeah. I'm missing so mad the whole about that still. horror aspect of it of yeah. I can't control this beast yeah, within. Like, at that point, it's a superpower. Congrats. You're a superhero. Play yes, a superhero you're the game, Hulk. please. Good job. Yeah. I, I sorry, that would... was that was a really hard stance to take on that. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I, I think Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is fine. As you say, when it's conflated with werewolf, it no. please tell tell its own story let it be its own thing and also yeah. can we please stop redoing dr jekyll and mr hyde we've gotten that story thank you mm-hmm. that's my t- hot take right there <laughs> one other little thing i kind of want to throw out there the idea of the werewolf as a secret lurking among us has other implications right it's not just oh this is nature lurking among us or a serial killer among us it can be any sort of infiltration story Mm -hmm. true blood right the idea of werewolves being nazi infiltrators Mm -hmm. that stems from the actual operation werewolf that the nazis had uh, which was trying to create a commando force operating behind enemy lines as the allies advanced through germany right at the end of the war and the idea was these were people lurking among you know the these everyone else and attacking from within mm-hmm. right and sure you can do that as actual werewolves as true blood did but the idea of this this lurking danger among us could really factor in anywhere right you could yeah. have you can tell any alien infiltration story as a werewolf infiltration story and change mm-hmm. only a few things. I think you have to be really, really careful with this, though, because I've also seen... I mean, heck, J.K. Rowling did this. Uh, you can... It can be used as a metaphor for, um, like, gay panic. And I think you have to be really, really sensitive when you do talk about the sort of werewolf in- infiltration kind of thing, because a lot of, of where the werewolf has disease and and more so with vampires but you see it a little bit with with werewolves as diseased is it comes from the uh hiv aids epidemic and paired with that gay panic and so yeah i can see some of that 
I think anytime you're doing a others among us kind of story, you have to be either very careful with it or very upfront about the yeah. fact that it is a metaphor yeah. and that you're not showing it in a good light. Mm-hmm. You know, purging, you know, cleansing the deviance among us is not a good take unless that is the horror of a horror scenario. Yeah. Yeah, right. I will say just to get back to what you were talking about, Grant, Nazi werewolves is something that works really well on several different interlocking lore levels. A oh, lot sure. of the Nazi mysticism was heavily influenced by Norse stuff. A lot of modern Norse pagans are not happy about that at all. Uh-huh. Um, there's there's a kind of there's a lot of fighting over certain like um, Norse symbolism and stuff between yeah. actual white supremacist groups and. What I will just call the there are no Nazis in Valhalla crowd, um, which is, you know, (laughs) people who subscribe to that belief system and are not horrible white supremacists. Mm -hmm. So you could probably, if you were careful to do it sensitively, play some of that up, too, where it's like, oh, you know, we're we're taking like this aspect of like these um, berserker warriors that are. You know, wolf aspected instead of literal bear sark or bear shirt aspected. And yeah, that's there's there's probably something there, too, if you want your because here's the here's the great thing about using Nazis as villains. They choose to be bad. It's mm-hmm. nothing that you can't control. So if you want right. to have like the the malignant infiltrator and like rooting them out, be something that the heroes do. Just make sure that whatever the bad thing is chose to be bad with its mm-hmm. eyes open. And mm-hmm. you're usually pretty good. Yeah. And that harkens all the way back to the whole witchcraft thing of, oh, yeah, well, these werewolves are obviously witches. So, yeah, they they chose that pact with the devil. Yeah. I do think there's a lot. Here's my last point. I think if you're telling a werewolf story get away from the most modern werewolf myths and really dig into some of the historical real werewolf myths out there get away from silver bullets get away from dnd stats go look up the the other ones because you've got more than 2000 years of werewolf stories to draw from make them your own thing by going back in time finding those traits, modernizing them just a little bit, and then telling stories with those. And I think it will be much more memorable memorable than, ah, a wolfman. Mm-hmm. Get the black powder pistol and melt down some silverware. Right. <laughs> you know, we're going to play testing for alloys. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, to, to quote one of my favorite Wondermark comics. That's, I, I, I would maybe make that my last suggestion. Mm-hmm. If you want to tell a werewolf story of any sort. Or at least consider it. You know, I mean, so yeah. people doing extensive research as part of GM prep is not something everybody has the luxury of time for. But of course, yeah, yeah you can you could. there's I think probably a better take is there's more stuff out there than you think. If you've got the time, you will probably have a richer game for having looked it up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's true of almost anything. (laughs) Yeah. And and there's such fascinating details. Just one last one real quick. I mentioned the the Vukodlak, Mm -hmm. right? The Serbian myth of that is that they would congregate annually in the winter months, strip off their wolf skins and hang them from trees. (laughs) 
right? And okay. then if you could get hold of another Vukodlok skin and burn it, that would release the curse off of that particular person. Hmm. It's just so different from what the the traditional American D&D players take on werewolves is that it's yeah. fascinating to me and there's you can go so deep and so broad in these things that you'll find completely different stories and give people a werewolf story that they will remember because it was so unique and interesting and something mm-hmm. they hadn't experienced before i want to hear your takes on werewolves whether or not we should keep doing monsters as a series I, the I've answer got is a- we're gonna do it anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i mean we're not gonna care but we're gonna we're going to hear, hear from yeah. you and then we're going to do it again. Uh, if, uh, um, that's not entirely true. If everybody revolts and is like, no more monsters, we will probably restrain ourselves. But why However, would they do that? Do Jenny and I are going to go start happening. a monster podcast. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> We've had pretty good but, yeah. responses to a lot of this kind of episode. So Yeah, yeah absolutely. We have. Uh, one other thing I should suggest, if you like this sort of thing, go listen to Monster Man which is an absolutely wonderful podcast. I'm trying to see who it is by James Holloway. You can just search Monster Man Podcast. It'll come right up. It is a wonderful show that goes through basically all of the original D&D monster manuals and talks about them. And But they also do special episodes, and I believe they have done one on werewolves. They're also going through other uh, monster b- books, not just like the official D&D ones. It's really cool. So if you like this sort of thing, strong recommend. And it's something that I occasionally use as a source for these episodes. Beyond that, if anybody has any other feedback, we want to hear it. And you can send that to us through social media at Saving the Game on Facebook and Twitter. You can send that to us on our blog, stgcast.org, where we post all of our episodes. You can send that to us through our Discord. We have a fantastic Discord community. It, you can find a link to it on our Twitter uh, or on our Facebook or on our website, stgcast.org. Big old Discord thing on each of those. Please join that Discord if you haven't yet. I know we have a number of you who haven't, just looking at our numbers in both of those. So, yeah, there's just a wonderful community of people to talk to uh, in that chat room. It's It's great. And on that note, I think we need to wrap this up uh, because Peter's editing and he's going to kill me if I don't. So, <laughs> I, and then I'll maybe come back not and kill, but <laughs> drink his blood on, his, on the battlefield. So, you know. <laughs> Certainly clobber. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to wrap this up here uh, from all of us here at Saving the Game. Have a good one. Take it easy. And we'll catch you next time. See, See you later, it. folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.